You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with attorney and longtime real estate investor, Scott Smith, to get a deep dive into asset protection. Scott's law firm, Royal Legal Solutions, helps thousands of real estate investors and entrepreneurs in all 50 states protect more than $1.2 billion in assets. Scott and I had a chance to talk about something that's not always given attention in the real estate investing space. When you are a beginner real estate investor, you may be thinking that you are doing your due diligence by getting insurance for your property, but sometimes that just might not be enough. Scott has a lot of knowledge on the topic of asset protection, and I'm sure this is going to be super useful for anyone interested getting into the real estate space or if you already have a portfolio. So let's get into this week's episode with Scott Smith. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Scott Smith. Welcome to the show, Scott. It's really great to be here with you, Robert. I work with real estate investors and and entrepreneurs all over the country, and I'm an open book. So anything you want to learn about today, it's a free-for-all on information from an attorney entrepreneur that focuses on real estate investing. We're going to talk a lot about asset protection, just how to protect yourself as a real estate investor in general today. But before we get into that, tell us a bit about your background and who you are. So I actually started in real estate investing when I was in law school. I bought my first company and property, which was a piece of commercial property and a transmission and auto repair shop with a partner during my second year of law school. I ended up flipping that to be able to graduate from law school without any debt. And I continued to invest in real estate after. And even when I was doing litigation work, suing major insurance companies, and I was continuing to invest in real estate uh, until I was making more money doing real estate than I was being an attorney. So then I left the attorney field to just focus on real estate, got my financial freedom to run into problems that, that people will typically run into as they started to scale and they've gone from that one to two to three plus properties. And, and what do you do with the entity structuring and the taxation and the accounting and the insurance and the banking and estate planning and, and tax savings and retirement accounts and like all of, the, all of the things that come up with that. So I had to put together a system for myself by you know, reading all the books and then talking to my colleagues, which were the people that wrote those books, because being an attorney, they, they treat you like a colleague and not a client. And then as I was going to meetup groups, people started asking me, hey, Scott, like, what are you doing with all this stuff? And so I started telling them and I said, well, hey, can you, can you put that together for me? And I said, well, sure. Before I knew it, I had so many people asking me to do that for them that I kind of accidentally started a law firm. And so that's been the course of development over the last six years. And now we're up to 30 people uh, that work in the firm with a few attorneys and a big paralegal team and uh, based out of Austin, Texas and help investors all over the country scale their real estate and how do they get from zero properties to three to 300. As real estate investors, I think we often hear the idea of asset protection thrown around a lot in various different ways, whether it's insurance products or just LLCs in general. But what exactly does asset protection mean in the context of real estate investing? Well, it means a few different things, right? Just as you pointed out there. So at the very beginning, the, the cheapest protection that you can buy is always insurance. It's going to protect you the, from the most amounts of risk for the cheapest amount of money. Problem with insurance though, is it's only partial protection. Insurance only protects you against one type of claim and that's just for a simple accident. So that's called negligence. 
But if there's any type of allegation of uh, miscommunication from an email, somebody says that you didn't comply with the contract, which happens all the time in real estate investing, now you're faced with a lawsuit that insurance doesn't protect you from. And if you own properties in your personal name, which is the absolute worst way to hold properties, then your potentially your entire life savings, your entire net worth is exposed. And I actually had a friend of mine who was sued and lost over $3 million in real estate because he was extremely well insured, had the umbrella policies in place, but had everything in his personal name. And he, he made that critical mistake of thinking that his insurance was sufficient to protect him. We're going to dive into that a little bit more in the conversation. I'm excited for that because I think it's a topic that I get asked about a lot about LLCs or should I just use an umbrella policy? But a lot of people listening to the show today are new investors who haven't done any deals or who have only done just a few deals. So as they continue through their real estate journey, and even for me, I'm not super far along on my real estate journey, so I'm here learning with the audience. When do we need to start considering asset protection? Well, it's a tricky question, right? So typically what I look at is saying that asset protection is always going to be something that it's only worth doing if you have net worth to protect. So the question is, is what's your total net worth? What do you got exposed here? If it's over $50,000 in terms of total net worth, then the very basics of asset protection start to make a lot of sense to put in place. Then the question turns on saying, well, what do I need to put in place first? Then the best things to put in place first at the very, very beginning is just a simple anonymous LLC. So one thing you have to realize is that the rich people, they don't own things, they don't pay taxes. So my I advocate for people is that we should all act like rich people because it's not that expensive to do it. And what you can do is you can create an anonymous LLC that's created through a law firm. So all of the anonymity of the ownership of that LLC is protected by the attorney-client privilege and your name doesn't appear anywhere on it in terms of the public record. You can take all of your assets and move it into that LLC. So that way, if you're ever sued, you don't lose anything. You don't have to care about lawsuits. You become what's called judgment-proof. You become bulletproof to judgments. So this becomes exceptionally important for you um, while you're growing because the hardest thing to do is to come back from a major setback financially. And so that's what we advocate a lot around is if you're interested in real estate, which you're probably interested in is what are guaranteed ways or predictable ways to be able to create financial freedom or increase your net worth. And the best way to increase your net worth over time is to follow Warren Buffett rules. And the first rule of that is don't lose money. It means don't lose money in the investment that you're making and also protect yourself from risk. So have great insurance in place. Use some of these tools at the appropriate level to be able to sure up the, the risks that you have, right? And that's where it comes into place of working with experts that do this a lot is because good experts will be able to show you what is it that you need to put in place now and what do you actually need to put in place in the future and what are the trigger points of when you would need to put in the next, next piece of the puzzles. Are there certain situations where insurance can be enough? Insurance usually doesn't cover you enough, but is there cases where that could be enough for someone? And if so, how can those insurance products be structured so that it is sufficient? Well, oftentimes insurance is enough. Insurance protects you against most of the cases and most of the claims that you'll ever get filed against you. The issue is though, is that whenever claims are getting expensive, or if there's any other time that a claim gets filed because of an email that you sent that somebody misunderstood and they say, hey, you, you deceived me in some way in that email. Well, those are always just misunderstandings typically, but somebody's got to pay for it because something bad happened and they're going to blame you for that. Or they're going to say, hey, you didn't, you didn't fulfill this part of the contract. Insurance never protects you against either of those two things because those are deemed intentional acts. Insurance only protects you against accidents and only some types of accidents, by the way. They don't protect you against really bad accidents. 
Anytime it's a really bad accident, the insurance company can just say, hey, well, that was actually gross negligence. And now our policy doesn't cover gross negligence into it. And then you're left having to sue your own insurance company. And that's actually what I did as a litigator, was suing insurance companies when they would deny claims based on principles that we thought they were doing for business reasons as a profit-seeking corporation instead of actually what their true contractual obligations were to their client. Now, you as an individual are not able to sue an insurance company. Your pockets are not deep enough. So you actually have to take further steps to ensure that if the insurance company decides that they want to screw you, that you're not like sitting there having to spend fifty dollars to $70,000 in attorney's fees. That you've actually taken the proactive steps to say, sue me all you want. You're not getting any of my stuff. And I'm not going to pay $50,000 or $10,000 or even $5,000 out to an attorney because actually I'm just going to say, I don't care about your lawsuit. And that's what I advocate is that kind of power position. So when we talk about these potentially deceptive emails, whether they're intentional or intentional, what if the owner of the property isn't actually communicating with the tenants? So what if you have a property manager? So literally all you're doing as the owner is managing the manager. And so you're not actually working with the tenant. Are you still responsible for the property manager's actions given that you own the property? And if not, do we still need to worry about these types of scenarios that you mentioned? So this is why we actually always advocate a two-company structure. So you have one anonymous entity that's going to own all of your assets. And typically, it's going to own that through land trust to avoid doing sale clause issues with mortgages and all that kind of good stuff. But it's a way to be able to create anonymity in the ownership of the asset while being able to transfer it underneath the umbrella of an LLC structure. So it's protected from lawsuits while creating all the anonymity in place. You can still acquire all the properties in your personal name and then transfer them after the fact. So you can take advantage of like great financing and all that with that, right? So that's on the left hand, so to speak. If you had two hands of this, your left hand would be asset protection. Your right hand would be operations. And what operations looks like is an entity that intentionally doesn't own anything. If you wanted to use a bad word to describe what that would be, it would actually be called a shell company, which people actually use all the time. And there's nothing evil about them. The laws are created intentionally for you to be able to leverage into doing this. I mean, the legislatures and the government wants you to do this stuff because they want you to go out there and be protected while you're building your business. And so what you do is you take that operating company and that operating company is the one that interacts with everybody else. It's the one that's going to interact with any of the tenants. It's going to interact with the property manager. It's going to hire a contractor. It's going to do everything. That way, if anything blows back, something goes wrong somewhere out there in the world, one, they can't get to your assets because that's an anonymous LLC that had no connection to them to begin with. And two, they can't get to you because you always acted through an operating company. And the most they can do if they sue the property manager or something goes wrong with that is it gets stopped by the operating company and they can't get to you personally. And even if you don't own anything, you have to protect yourself personally because a lawsuit against you personally means that your credit score got damaged, which inhibits your ability to do business. So it's worth investing the $650 to $900, depending upon where you live, to form up the entity to ensure that your, your longevity in this game doesn't get delayed by years because of just something random that happened that you can't control. Because you can't control when people sue you, right? I mean, it doesn't matter how honest you are. It's in their hands, whether they decide they want to do that. And so at what point does this really become realistic for an investor? And the reason I asked this was because I had read a lot of things very similar to what you're talking about here. I thought I understood it well. And I bought my first out-of-state property. And it was a single family, relatively you know, cheap. It was generating good returns in terms of what we had to put into the property. So cash on cash return was great, but the absolute value of the return was relatively small. It was a couple thousand dollars a year. When we looked at it, we could form an LLC in our home state 
for a hundred dollars. So that was super cheap. We weren't worried about that. But then when tax time came, we realized we had to form an LLC also in the state in which we were operating. And that was seven hundred or eight hundred dollars. So we were all in for about a thousand dollars. You made a big mistake. You didn't have to do that. Why? Yeah. So we ended up not doing that. So let's talk yeah. about why. So what you could have done, what you should have done, and what everybody should do is if you think you're going to be acquiring multiple properties, the first thing that you should do is actually invest with the end in mind. Think about like all your investments that you're making right now with your assets. And think about that in terms of saying, like, what's a structure that can grow with me? The best structure you can use uh, for that is going to be some type of a series structure. So with the series structure, it's very unique. What you can do is you can file one entity. And then what that entity can do is for free, create sub-entities. So you get an infinitely scalable company at no additional cost. And then you can compartmentalize each one of your assets underneath that parent entity. So it's like the parent and the child and the asset underneath it that comes into it. That's great for liability protection because then if there's a lawsuit against one asset, they can't go after any of the other assets. And by the way, you get to have all the extra protection for free. And it doesn't even cost you any more operational. You can still conduct everything out of one big account, have one EAN number and one tax return. Now, the question really becomes is when you create one of these series entities, whether it's going to be a series LLC or a Delaware statutory trust, which are the two preferred entities that we use across the country, you don't have to register that entity in the foreign state if you move the property into a land trust. So you would always take your entity, your, your property, Robert, you buy it, say, like in Kentucky, and you have your Kentucky property, you move it into a land trust. Now, because it's moved into a land trust, you've created anonymity around the property ownership. You've also avoided the due on sale clause per the St. Germain Act. So the mortgage company can't say anything to you. So you say, great, now I have anonymity of property. Now, what you do is you take that land trust and you make the owner of the land trust, the child series that we just talked about of your series entity, whether it's going to be a series LLC or a DST. So now we've compartmentalized the asset to a child series of the parent. We've also owned the property indirectly through a land trust to be able to create anonymity and also avoid the due on sale clause. And the best part about this is that because the property is being owned in a land trust in that foreign state, that means that the LLC or the DST is not operating in that foreign state. It's actually the land trust and therefore no foreign entity registration requirement is there. And if there's ever a lawsuit, the protections from the home state where the LLC is formed have to be applied per the full faith and credit clause of the United States Constitution and wherever the state where the lawsuit occurred. So we get all of the protections of the LLC from the home state without ever having to register it in the foreign state. So when you, the biggest thing that you mentioned there that interests me is that whole due on sale clause. People ask me this all the time. I can't get a loan in the LLC if it's less than four units. It's almost impossible. You know, you, it can be done in some cases, but it's very, very, very difficult. So a lot of times what people will do is they'll buy the property in their personal name. They'll quick claim deed it to uh, an LLC or something along those lines. Of course, that could technically trigger the due on sale clause. It doesn't necessarily always, but they have the right to. How does this differ? And you mentioned the St. Germain Act. I'm not personally familiar with that. I'm sure the audience probably isn't either. Walk us through that a little bit and give us some more details on that because I know it's really important for a lot of people listening to the show. So most of the time, people are just running naked out there because what they'll do is that they'll take the property and then like they acquire their personal name and they just transfer it directly into the name of the LLC. Not only is that like more costly to do it that way because they have to pay the foreign entity registrations and all that kind of good stuff, or they say, well, I'm just going to run that risk, right? Of maybe the bank is going to call it due and say, hey, well, probably banks won't call it due as long as the mortgage note continues to get paid, right? Which is kind of like the, the real effect. I mean, like really at the end of the day, it's kind of business, right? But you don't have to float that risk, especially if we look at like if interest rates really change, well, where are banks going to make more money? 
Well, they might try to do that by forcing refinances where people at one point it was fine and another point wasn't. So that's why I like to use the land trust. So the St. Germain Act protects people from transferring assets into trusts. It was originally designed for the purposes for estate planning. And so that's the way that we craft our land trust to be able to fall inside of the same caveats that are created for that piece of it. It's just a little bit of legal knowledge that allows you to be able to know that and a little bit of research. We actually have a ton of articles about this on the that we post up on biggerpockets.com where I'm a regular contributor. We usually post about two articles a week there and on the royallegalsolutions.com website if you really want to dig into the nitty-gritty of the legal nerding on why does this all work the way it does, that'd be the best place to check it out. But this is a way that you can actually do it. You can get up to your first 10 properties, you know, all inside your conforming loans, transfer it into the land trust. Yeah, you brought up the point that I mention very frequently, and I've even thought it myself and kind of been my rationale for some of the deals that I've done. And that is, as long as you're making the mortgage payment, then you're fine and the bank won't have an issue with the quitclaim deed. I heard you mention this twice, and I just want to make sure that, um, that you and everybody else knows about this. Because when you transfer the, the asset, I'd recommend not using a quitclaim deed. I recommend using a warranty deed instead. And the reason why actually has to do with your title insurance. That when you look in your title insurance policies, if you transfer it with uh, warranties in place, that the title insurance is actually effective to the subsequent owner of the property and it carries through down. When you use a quick claim deed, what you're actually doing is transferring it with no warranties. And so when you transfer a property with no warranties, it actually voids the title insurance. So if you, we have some articles about that as well, too, about how do you make sure that your deed that you're using has the appropriate language side of it on the website. But I just wanted to point that out too, because that's just like a, that's a little thing, right? How often do any of us actually use our title insurance policies anyway? A lot of times we just have to get them because the bank requires it into it. But uh, if anybody is out there that's as big of a nerd as me, that they would, they'd be saying, Hey, why isn't Scott talking about that? No, that's a really good point. I, I did know about the difference between the warranty deed, the quick claim deed, and I knew that you were more or less foregoing your warranty when you did that, but I didn't think about the title insurance side of it. I just assumed they did the title check when we bought the property. So quit claiming it to the new entity isn't going to be an issue because I know nothing has changed since the purchase. But I mean, you raise a very, very good point about the title insurance. Well, the policy actually gets voided if you use a right. claim deed. So if you found about the title defect later, and then your neighbor was like, hey, this is actually the wrong thing is wrong. He went back and like, hey, my title insurance company. And they're going to be like, well, you guys checked it. You guys said it was good. And they're like, yeah, but we don't got to pay you because the contract's void now because of the subsequent transfer. So that's where you got to be careful. So this is what's going to happen, right? Because they're in the business of making money. And if they can deny the claim, that's what insurance companies do. Is they make money on collecting premiums and denying coverage. That's the business model. Yeah, that's a very, very, very good point that I, I hadn't considered. And I really haven't... I mean, I've read up quite a bit on this. I'm, I'm not as much of a nerd in the legal side of things as, as maybe you are, but I'm pretty passionate about this kind of stuff, business in general. So I've read up on it and I've never come across anything about that. So that's a really good point. And I'm glad we, we talked about that. Now, why don't more people know about this? Well, I think what happens is, is that this is pretty niche. I'm also an investor. So I had to build all of this stuff from the ground up for myself. And who the heck else is out there like doing that? There's a lot easier money to be made as an attorney, just kind of doing stuff. This is built for me out of something that I was had to figure out for myself and then able to talk to other people about it and then and then solely focusing on these issues of like how do you actually build wealth, how do you actually create financial freedom, actually how do you use real estate as an, as a tool to be able to help get you, you know, from 0 to 5 million net worth, how to create passive income to be able to equal your expenses and what are the best tried and true ways of getting that? I just don't know how many people out there that are like me. They're like that's all they do and think about and meet people about and network about is how to do that. So that's probably, if I had to guess, that's probably why. 
Yeah, it's just interesting because I think the most common thing I hear is about how do I get capital to buy real estate. But after that, probably the second most important thing, the second most common thing I hear is, do I need an LLC? And so I'm just surprised that when that conversation comes up, as much as it does, I'm surprised there aren't more people that say, hey, you know, quick claim deed isn't necessarily the right way, which it seems what most people say is the right thing to do and aren't just talking about these types of strategies. So I'm, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation and that the audience is allowed to learn this and I'm, I'm learning from it as well. Now, what about if there's partners in the business? Given that it's going to a legal entity that can probably have partners, I'm guessing it's probably not a huge deal, but does that change anything with the land trust? No, not at all. So what you do is you just structure your partnership agreement inside of your operating agreements. Every LLC is required to have an operating agreement to be enforceable. So what you do is you put the terms of your partnership in that agreement for the LLC. The land trust owns title of the property. The land trust technically owns the property, right? But who owns the land trust? Well, that's the partners that are the owners of the LLC. So all of these things are completely appropriate for partners. Now, when you have a partner into the business, right? Now, the entity is no longer going to be a pass-through or disregarded entity for your taxes where you would just report all the income on your Schedule E. Um, with the partners, now you have to file K-1s and issue and, and do a partnership return. Um, so that's just a key differentiation to make sure that you know uh, whenever you're looking to take on partners, that you're also going to have some extra operational costs for your tax returns. Yeah. So that's going to impact how you file your taxes. But does that change anything in terms of what we talked about for the foreign entity? No, that's going to be all the same. Interesting. That's good to know. Now, how about someone who has heard the more common advice about the quick claim deed already? Maybe they've done that with their property. Is it possible to go back and quick claim it back to them personal selves and then actually do the warranty deed to you know everything that we've talked about so far? Or are they more or less voided now, given that they've already done that? I think you could actually, because you could actually say that you filed the deed by mistake and then say, yeah, it was actually like an invalid transfer because I didn't actually mean to file it as a, and that way I meant to file it as a different way. To be able to go through that process, though, it's probably going to cost you around $1,000 or so uh, to be able to effectuate the different transfers, file the appropriate paperwork into that. So you just have to weigh that in in terms of like, okay, well, how risky do I think it was that I voided my title insurance or about the due on sale clause? You know, like how risky do I think that is? So my personal estimation on it would be like, it really depends on what's going on with that property and how much it bugs you. Honestly, this is where it actually shakes out. If these types of topics that we're talking about with like, do I need an LLC? Am I worried about like what's going on with like my anonymity of like my property ownership or like what can my neighbors actually find out about my net worth and like what it is that I'm doing? If those things bug you, like and they're hitting you in your head multiple times a day, it's worthwhile getting rid of those by just executing the right strategy. And the reason why is because you got to think about like, how are you actually making money? The only way you really make money is because you have brain power that's chugging through problems that you're then executing on. And if you have latent, latent stuff that's bothering you, that's actually like a mental vampire that's costing you money every day that you just don't even know about, right? And it's causing you extra stress and all kinds of other stuff. So my, one of my goals and the biggest thing that changed my life and be able to increase my net worth a lot faster was just getting rid of the stuff that bothered me on a daily basis. Like whatever the cost would be, I was like, I got to get rid of it because I got to get my mind focused on like, what are the essential things that I need to be doing that are actually driving my life forward in the ways that are most impactful. And that's probably not too revolutionary. Like we do that in business every day around getting KPAs, KPIs, doing process improvements over time, getting more efficient. But we ourselves are a machine. So these types of mental vampires that we have are inefficiencies in the machine, and we need to get rid of those in one way or another. And these types of issues, if they're things that are bothering you around like estate planning or tax or whatever, that's where it can make sense at any level. 
to start forming a relationship with somebody who's smarter than you that's done it before. And I can show you like, here's the right ways to be doing it that are appropriate for you. Because once you get rid of all of that stuff, the mental clarity that you have impacts your life in ways that you don't even know. Yeah, that's very well said. I completely agree. I actually talk about a specific example on my other show called Millennial Investing about this one time I bought Bitcoin a couple years ago. I sold it a couple of days later. I just I couldn't sleep good at night knowing that I own that asset. I didn't understand it enough. So it was messing with me mentally. I wasn't clear in my head. I couldn't focus on other things. It was I just really didn't feel comfortable with it. And it's just like you said, it could mean it could be estate planning, it could be taxes, it could be your legal ownership of your real estate. I mean, it could be anything, but it's one of those things that I don't think gets talked about a lot. But getting rid of those things that take away your mental energy is is so important. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Now, you mentioned about $1,000 to get back from that quick claim that you originally filed. Just out of curiosity, where does that number come from? And I ask that because I've done a quick claim before and it cost me about $50 to $100. I just sent a check to the local uh, county records office, I guess it's called. And they were able to record the deed. And that, I mean, that was pretty much it. There's a couple of things in here too, right? I'm talking about that. That's if you like hire a firm to do it for you. Anything that you want to do in law or tax or any of these things, totally able to do it yourself for a lot cheaper than you can hire somebody else that's done it. The questions become is, is like, what are you trying to accomplish and how competent are you and how much time do you actually have to be able to go do that? And how confident are you that you're going to be doing it right? And is that really the best use of your time? That's a ton of factors to end up weighing into it, right? And what we were discussing before is like, well, it's not actually just a simple deed. There's actually like, you need to actually file separately to be able to be like, okay, well, how do I actually allege this is legally a mistake? What does that actually mean? What are the terms in which that I can actually legally claim that committing some type of fraud into it? And that's why I was like, okay, well, there's going to be some nuance into this. But yeah, any, any of those, anytime you can do something like on your own that you feel like is well inside your wheelhouse uh, to be able to go do and you feel confident with it, it's always going to be cheaper to, to have yourself do it than to hire an attorney to do it for you. Right. So like if you're making under like $50,000 a year, a lot of times I'd say like, don't even worry about asset protection. Don't even worry about this. The thing you need to focus on is how do you make more money? You don't have a problem with tax. You don't have a problem with asset protection. You don't have a problem with that and having LLCs. You have a problem you haven't figured out how to make money yet. What you really need to do is figure out how to make more money. And then you're like, holy smokes, I am so buried how to do with the money making thing. I need other people to go take care of all this other stuff because it's actually cheaper for me to even pay an attorney or pay some professional to just go do that thing so I can focus on making more money. And that's really where we need to be. Like as an entrepreneur or somebody that's getting into the game, the key metric that you would have is called what's your effective dollar per hour. And if you don't know what your effective dollar per hour is, you, are, you don't have a clue about well, what are the things are that you need to be putting your time into. So it'd be like, you need to know that number. So is there a general threshold? I mean, you threw out 50,000, but is there, a, I mean, I'm sure it varies drastically, but is there generally a, a dollar amount that you're making per year that you'd say, all right, we need to start looking at asset protection. It might be worthwhile now. I typically look at it as anywhere between 50 to 100,000 plus in total net worth. It makes sense for the very basic pieces that we're doing in terms of asset protection. The $50,000 per year number of like active income that you're bringing in each year has to do with actually where your tax savings comes in. Because after you make over $50,000 a year, you need an LLC that then you'd use an, as an S-corp election to be able to save on self-employment taxes, which saves you about 10% off your tax each year by splitting your income between employee wages and dividends. Sounds really like it's a lot. It's not a ton, but it's something you need to know about. So anywhere between 50 to 130 a year, that's your strategy. Once you go above that, then we start using C corporations and other things to be able to shelter money from taxes. Or maybe shelter is not the right word. Maybe that's like quasi-illegal, but that's the one that came to mind. 
you're really just doing the legal tax saving strategies around C corporations, right? With that. So, but when you're below $50,000 net worth, when you're below making $50,000 a year, there's not a lot you can do. There's not really many levers to pull at that point besides like, hey, come to my coaching class and let's talk about your entrepreneurship and why you suck at being an entrepreneur and how you can be better at it. And so we were talking about that $1,000 cost of hiring someone to do the quick claim deed if you've already done it to get back to even, if you will. And you mentioned that it may or may not be worth it depending on you know how much you own, how much money you're making. But the but other- your risk too, right? right? Like If we're talking about curing a title issue, do you really think that there's going to be a title claim? Okay. Well, if you don't, then don't spend the money on it. You know, If you do, then holy smokes, let's do it right now. Yeah, that makes sense. And how about long-term thinking, right? Maybe this person owns one one property, maybe they make a decent salary, but they're expecting to acquire three, four, five more properties over the next year, two, three, four years. Is that a time where it might be worthwhile to start looking into this even though they're not there yet? Just so that because we were talking about those series entities where they have the children entities under them. And so maybe they don't need them all at this time, but you know, maybe having that structure set up already so that when they buy those new properties, it's already in place. Typically, what we do is our, in our initial intake for every client that comes in is that that's one of the essential questions we have. Is like, if everything goes right, how many properties do you have in five years? Like realistically, like how many properties you're going to acquire? If you're like, hey, I got two properties or I got one property and I'm only ever planning on run one property, we're like, well, great. You need just a traditional, you know, an anonymous LLC. We can do everything inside of there. We don't actually need this scalable structure. You're going to say like, well, I got two now, but I'm actually going to 10 within the next five years. Well, great. Well, let's plan on that. So that way we can build with the end in mind. Now, when we talk about this and specifically about scaling, is it the total number of properties that matters or is it the total number of units? Because there could be a big discrepancy there, right? I mean, if you own two properties, you could have two units or you could have two properties at 100 units each. So is it really the number of properties or units? It's actually the number of properties because the properties are the smallest division that you can actually chop up into entity structures. And it has to do with deeds, right? I can only deed a property. I can't deed a unit into it. So that's typically where you're going to find like most investors that are using these types of series structures are typically one to four unit types of investors. Once you start going into like multifamily flipping, those kind of things, now we're, those are different types of solutions than the typical series structure. So I'm sure that this answer is going to vary drastically depending on everybody's situation, but Everything we've talked about so far, what is someone looking at generally for a cost if maybe they owned one property, maybe two properties, maybe even three? We actually have like DIY options where I've actually have like forms, templates, and instructionals um, to go through that, where you know you can get stuff, really high quality stuff like put together. And as long as you're willing to do part of the shoulder, you know, part of the work on your own, you can get gr- like really high level stuff put together for yourself for just a few hundred dollars. When, when you want the professional team to be meeting with you frequently about it, to be putting it together for you, doing like a lot of the in-person types of explanation and hand-holding, then those costs can go up significantly. I would say for there's DIY options that we have that are within the hundreds of dollars range. Most of the time, we're working with clients that are in the, want the personal contact with like having a personal dedicated advisor and those kind of things. Those are in the thousands of dollars range. So I think a major hurdle keeping new investors from getting started is this dynamic that we've been talking about of whether or not they need an LLC to invest. For someone brand new starting out, do they need to even worry about an LLC to buy their first property? No. I mean, what I would do is I would just... What we always say to people is don't ever let anything else stand in the way of you making money. So go out there and make the money first. After you acquire that first property, then you can make some decisions on what it is that you want to do. 
But here's a real kicker, right? Before you even jump into that first property, what I'd recommend doing is going to the website, royallegalsolutions.com website, and getting all of our free info into it. So you can have like a game plan to put together for yourself. You can talk to some of the staff. There's free options to be able to have that and to be able to just create like, where are you going to fit it? Like to like what it is that we specialize in. And, and then you'll be able to make those decisions on your own too, right? Because it has to depend on your own personal risk. But like never don't make money, right? Like always make the money. I'm like, once you make the money, other you can always clean stuff up afterwards. You can have professionals come in and do it. But you should never like wait on making money. So what is the best solution for someone in that situation where they're trying to decide, do I invest or not because I don't have an LLC? And they, they take our advice, they invest. Then what do they do? Do they buy an insurance product or what is the next step? You're going to have to buy an insurance product like from the bank because the bank is going to require you to do that, right? Unless you're buying the property cash. So you're going to have like the minimal protections that are going to be in place. And so what I'm advocating for people to say like, well, do the, do the educational component. Join the community of people that are talking about these types of contexts and educate yourself now so you're not stuck in this position of saying, what the heck do I do now? And do I have to do this or that? And you're going to put yourself into like a frantic place of like, am I at risk or not? And how much or whatever? So my advice would be like, get the education early, join the community, start meeting more people that are going to be thinking about those same type of topics. But if you have the option, like right now, if you're into it and you're like, hey, I'm going to buy this property tomorrow, should I wait or not? I'm going to say, no, go buy the property right now. But for most people, I'm like, listen, if you're just starting out and you're trying to like save money and you're pinching your pennies to be able to go do it and to get into your first property, then don't spend money on all of this other stuff. Just go get your property. Maybe look at a DIY option that we have there and all the free education materials that we got. Because if you don't have a lot, you need to really just focus on making more money. I mean, that's just the hard truth. Focusing on all these other things is really just a, not the most effective use of your time. And so going back to one of the things we talked about a few minutes ago, and that was having this series entity and how there's the parent entity and then there's the children under it. Are those all separate entities? So if you own 10 properties with the one parent and then they're all sub entities or children entities, if one of those entities gets sued, are all the other properties or entities shielded? That's the purpose of a series entity is it allows you to be able to have to only pay for one entity with the state, but you get to create an unlimited number of child series for free and they all compartmentalize all, each of the properties in conjunction with the trust. And I have a bunch of cool diagrams on the website because I'm sure everybody listening to this is like, what the heck? How does this all work? But we have cool diagrams on there that you can see once you see it visually, you'll be like, oh, it's super simple. But that's the whole point. The whole point is to be able to say like, I had a lawsuit. Grandma fell through the staircase you know, on one of my properties, right? Because she fell through the staircase, uh, she got catastrophically injured. And because she got catastrophically injured, the insurance company's business model says that they deny coverage to that, claiming that it was gross negligence, which all it means is an accident that you should have known was going to happen. I don't know how you should have known it was going to happen, but that's what they claim. So that allows them to be able to deny you coverage. And then now grandma is going to sue who? Well, whoever owned the property. If that's you personally, your entire net worth is exposed. So get ready to shell out some serious bucks to an attorney or get ready to go bankrupt from being in that, being in that position. If you have this compartmentalized underneath a, a series LLC structure or a DST structure inside of these child series, then the most you can actually lose is that one property. And it's just the equity that's in that one property. So that shifts the leverage back to you because now you're not completely exposed. Your entire net worth or facing bankruptcy if this thing goes wrong. And now you can make a lot more tactical decisions of what's happening. So when it's just a lawsuit against that one property, it's in a child series. It's just that one property. They can't go after any of your other properties. They can't go after you personally. One of the things I like to do with the show is talk to guests about mistakes they've personally had or even seen other investors make. 
That way that the audience and I can both learn from those people's mistakes and not have to make them ourselves. So what are the most common mistakes you've seen other investors make when it comes to asset protection? Or even what are some of the mistakes you made before you knew everything that you know today? Oh man, I've made so many mistakes. I mean, I literally think I've made so many mistakes in entrepreneurialism and real estate investing that's cost me millions of dollars. Like, I mean, actual millions of dollars, not like, like hypothetical opportunity cost dollars. <laughs> Just because the, you know, and it's really weird, right? Like, it's one of those hard things to learn that it's like the cost of education when you're in business is actually much more expensive than any other type of education that you can buy or not buy. But one of the key things that, and we talked about a lot on, on my podcast, Real Estate Nerds, is the mindset around what it takes to be able to have consistent growth over time. And we talk about investors and their best and worst deals and what they did or didn't do that led them there. All these guys were gangsters when it came to like how well they knew how to technically invest. But there's a mindset behind what happens when you're getting into a deal or when you're doing a business transaction that it's very important to be cognizant of and to actually have high levels of awareness about. Because every time you do a deal, you think it's a great deal. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done that deal. So why is it that we can have all of the technical skills that sometimes work and sometimes don't? Well, it has to do with like a mindset that's approached. And that's Grant Cardone, Rod Cleef, all those guys talk about that on the podcast. Now, the one thing that I'll say, another piece I'll say to that that's important to be aware of too, is what got you to where you're at right now isn't going to be to get you where you need to go. They're two different pieces. Where you, what you know right now is getting to where you're at right now. Where you want to go, that's probably a new skill set and a new set of learning, a different way of thinking and a different way of operating. So like, that's why I was like bringing up the story about my, my friend who lost over $3 million in real estate when he's really well insured. Being really well insured with an umbrella policy and a liability insurance policy is totally appropriate if when you have one property or when you're just getting started, or if you have really low net worth and you have really low equity in your properties because you don't have a ton exposed maybe. It's really bad when you have a lot of equity. But he took a strategy that worked for him at one point and then extended it and didn't reconsider of whether it was still appropriate at a different level. These are where points of awareness become exceptionally important, where you need to know when does the game change? Because the game is going to change whether you're cognizant of it or not. And you need to be around people and around a community of people that are talking about the game. If you're an entrepreneur, this is the difference between working on your business versus working in your business. Working in your business, you're going to do okay. You're basically going to be you, maybe a couple of employees, maximum. Working on your business is where you're really going to scale. But working on your business is a totally different skill set than working in your business. It's understanding how the game itself is played, not just how to do the actual turning of the crank. So how about all of what we've talked about so far? It all makes sense in the real estate space, but now how about somebody who's a real estate investor, but they also have a W-2 job. Let's say that they have a regular job as well, but let's put that to the side for a second. But what if they also have a side business, a small business, a side hustle, something along those lines? Do a lot of the principles that we've talked about so far apply to that type of situation as well? Yeah, it's actually the exact same principles. Just apply it all different. Replace real estate asset with website, with vans, with intellectual property. And it's the same exact principles. Asset holding company owns all of the assets. Operating company interacts with all of the clients to be able to shelter the asset holding company and yourself from liability. To the extent that the operating company is using any of those assets, it leases those assets back from the asset holding company to the operating company. So that way, if the operating company is ever sued, they can wind down, you start a new operating company, all of your assets are still intact, and you're back in business in the next day. So the same types of legal principles are there. Real estate is just uh, a vein where a lot more people have a lot more risk. That's a very cognizant of. Although every business owner should be aware that their brand, their website, all of these things would take them years more to develop if they had to start over from scratch because you had some vindictive person who sued you and then took all of it. 
and essentially just and wiped you out into it. So these things can cost a few hundred dollars. There's you know DIY options that cost a few hundred dollars. It can cost a few thousand dollars if you have other people that are actually going to do it all for you and coach you through it and be able to walk you through those types of systems and processes of how to think about it and what and what actually to do with that. And the way I look at it say is like we talk about like the mental vampires as one way of looking at like a decision making of like, do I need to do this? Another way of looking at this is how long does it take me to recover if something bad happens? Honestly, right? If you said like I have a half million dollars at stake and then I have a half million dollars in net worth. And then you say, well, Scott, like how long, you know, should I invest in asset protection? My question for our whole rest of our conversation would be like, yeah, absolutely you fall into the criteria. But a more sophisticated question might actually be like, well, how long would it take you to recover that half million dollars? Because that actually is the true resource. I mean, the time is the one thing they're not making any more of. And if you can recover that half million dollars in two weeks or a week or the next day, then I'd say, well, maybe don't worry about it. I mean, like you don't really have much risk here. You're only talking about one day or time. If that represents five or more years of your life, well, are you willing to not spend a few thousand dollars to make sure that you don't have to get reset the clock for five years to be able to get to your ultimate goals? And that's where I look for saying we need to think long term here. And I'm thinking about like how much time do I really want to be in this game before I'm actually financially free? And how can I create safety for myself to know that I'm a consistent gains over time, to know when I'm going to be able to ring that bell and be like, all right, cool, I'm out of here without having big setbacks. So when we include this idea of a side hustle with also a real estate business, because I think a lot of people in the real estate space who maybe haven't quit their full-time job yet, they, they're very... Or even people who have, they're very entrepreneurial. They like to do a lot of different things. So a lot of people have side hustles on the side on top of real estate. Do those types of things fall as a child of the larger parent entity that we were talking about before? Or does that start its entirely own series entity? You think about these two things as two totally separate. So we talk about things being like personal asset holding company where you're accumulating all of your real estate. And you have an operating company that's a wing of your real estate company that's your property manager or hiring contractors or doing collecting rental payments from your lessees. Now, when you have an active business, that's a, that's a totally separate deal. You're going to want to keep those separate. But among other things, it's also for tax reasons. You don't want to be mixing passive income and active income together inside of the same entity. Uh, there's tax implications for doing that. There's also asset protection issues and other legal issues with that. So treat like your personal pieces and your real estate separate from your, your active or your side hustle. And one final tactical kind of nitty gritty question about the series entity structure of a real estate property or portfolio. So assuming we have that parent company, the series parent company with the children below it, what if you have a partner for one property and then you have another property with a different partner and then another property with a different partner? Is it possible to still have the one same parent company with them each owning different percentages or equity stakes in those children entities? There's some more paperwork that has to be done to be able to accomplish that. But legally speaking, technically, it's actually totally possible. Each child series is its own legal entity. It can have its own operating agreement and its own partners, its own EIN number, and its own bank account, and file its own separate tax return, and issue its own K-1s. So literally, you can actually create a series LLC and have an infinitely scalable company that has all the flexibility as if you would have filed individual LLCs. Now, keeping track of all of that in a way that's going to be easily manageable, that's its own separate challenge, right? When you're trying to do that. But is it possible? Technically, yes. Really, really interesting stuff. Scott, thanks so much for sharing all your knowledge and wisdom about asset protection in the context of real estate investing, side hustles, and just general entrepreneurship. I could probably talk about this. I could geek out with you about this topic for probably hours, but 
Let's wrap up the show here. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I'm no expert when it comes to this topic. So I really love learning this material alongside the audience today. For those who may have more questions about what we discussed, or they're just interested in connecting with you, maybe having their situation analyzed, where is the best place for them to go? Honestly, man, they're, like we have everything that we know on the royallegalsolutions.com website. It's actually like almost like a choose-your-own-adventure story kind of website. So whether you're looking at like what's the type of assets that I'm buying, am I interested in generational wealth building, interested in tax savings, the website's designed to be able to guide you through a tailor-made type of information that comes for like that type of persona. What is the information they're going to need? Now, what's also super cool is that we actually have personnel on staff that I've trained to be able to manage the chat that's in there. So if you want direct access for questions that you have, you can interact with the chat and they'll either be able to answer your question there or connect you directly into what's the resource that we have on the website that's directly applicable to your question. So like you can get a hold of us like through the chat, you can go through like that get a price piece and like watch like the long form videos. We have a ton of articles in there. Again, you can either search for those or you can get them through the chat. But like I've tried to design royallegalsolutions.com to be like the place to say like, we don't want to talk to just like a million people. It's like, go there, do the study, find out what the information is. And if you need to reach out to us, say like, where should I be looking for different types of things? We're there to help guide you into that, help educate you over time to say like, hey, you might not be a customer today. You might not be somebody we can help today, right? But you might be somebody that we can help six months, a year, two years, five years down the line um, by just getting you connected up to like, what's the absolute best information that we've been able to put together. Yeah, that's all really, really great. I like what you guys are doing at Royal Legal Solutions. I've been on the website a little bit. I added to my to-do list to go check out that video. And I'm also going to walk through the get a, a price process and go through that so I can learn a little bit more about it as well. I'll be sure to put links to everything that we talked about, all of your resources in the show notes. I'll also put links to some books related to this type of material in the show notes so everybody can go learn more about it if they're interested. Scott, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Awesome being with you today, brother. Thanks. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.